And so the primary purpose of the book is not to be fruitful, multiply, increase the number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Though if you do what they say, that will happen, yeah. most likely. <laughs> the odds are in your favor. It's just about a married couple having passionate, deep, connected, romantic intimacy. Because that's needed before you have kids. Yes. Your marriage is always most important. And so having a healthy relationship gives you healthy perspective in raising your kids and keeping your marriage priority. Well, howdy. Pastor Mark here. Welcome back to the Real Marriage Podcast. If you haven't heard, we've got a brand new book, my wife Grace and I, called Real Romance. It's about sex in the Song of Songs. It's uh, releasing in February. And here's the big idea. Uh, my wife Grace and I, we have been teaching on marriage for a long time. And the thing that was most popular was the Song of Solomon many years ago. And we have brought back all of that content. We have expanded it. Uh, be the first time that we have ever published and widely released it. And hey, let's just be honest, man. Economy is down, money is tight. You need a new hobby. We're here to help spice up your bedroom. Uh, you can find all the details and pre-order the book at uh, realromancebook.com. That's realromancebook.com. Thanks to our friends at XO and Pastor Jimmy for publishing it. On today's episode, we will be sharing a little more from the book. And I would tell you, don't merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says and have a good date night. Um, one of the things that was particularly helpful was just looking at sex in general in the Bible because we disagreed. And then one book of the Bible in particular has been the most helpful possibly my favorite book of the Bible, The Song of Songs. And so we'll get into that, and we expect you to practice what we preach. It's going to be great. Uh, after you leave. After you leave, and uh, if you're dating, uh, after you're married. That's right. That's right. So, um, so maybe let's start with just talking about sex in general, and then we'll get into The Song of Songs in particular. We kind of have come to the point that we think that there's basically three ways that people view sex. Yeah. Uh, sex as God is one of them, and that's when you put sex in the place of God. It's your priority. You think about it constantly, not in a healthy obsessive. way. Yeah. yeah, and and it's all it's how you see your spouse or whoever you're <laughs> with. You see them through the lens of sex instead of who they are and getting to know them and loving them in a character way. Um, and and so yeah, that can be really damaging because the person can feel used. Um, they can feel. Yeah, just like you don't care about anything else, and, and that's... Don't care about the soul, the emotions, mm -hmm. yep. the relationship. Yeah, it's absolutely. just the physical act. Second one? Is gross, and that is where a lot of times historically, even in, you know, Christian homes, a lot of kids are raised as sex is gross, Save it for the one you marry. I always you know, say sex don't. is dirty, nasty, yeah. vile, and wrong. So save it for the one you love. That's kind of that. Exactly. That's kind of what we tell kids in youth groups sometimes. Yeah, and it, so it's seen as not as something that God created as a beautiful thing and as a gift. It's seen as something that's just I'll just tolerate it. It's gross, but we'll get through it. And you know, it's just not a fun thing. It's not an enjoyable thing. It's just gross. So and then God's way. Avoid it. And then God's way is it's seen as a gift. And he created it. He created it before, um, for Adam and Eve, he created it so that we could enjoy it mutually. He created it also to procreate. He created it to comfort. There's a lot of purposes as sex being a gift. Um, but if we don't see it as that, that's kind of where we need to start in order to start to heal up. 
Mm-hmm. And if we don't see it as that, we need to stop and think about, okay, if I see it as gross or God, how do I go back to seeing it as the gift God has given it? And so that's kind of what we're doing through all these series is helping people see sex as a gift and heal up so that they can have that relationship with their spouse that is a beautiful thing. So you're very practical. I'm very theological. So let me unpack a little bit of this. So the sex as God it has always been that God's people were surrounded with people who basically worshiped sex as God or used uh, false sexuality as just part of their identity and lifestyle. Uh, This includes in the Old Testament times, God's people were surrounded with fertility cults. There were Canaanite gods that you would uh, worship with erotic poetry and part of the sex acts in their cultish worship included sexual activity and the temples really were brothels with sexual activity. In the Old Testament times, there were the asteropoles that were really male phallic symbols Mm -hmm. that, you know, you think of a society that's not uh, well-built and constructed like the industrial age and modern era. You look out on the plains, and the one thing you can see is the phallic symbol of the astropole, and that was to encourage everyone to venture to that place to have illicit sex uh, to demonic false gods. Um, This included temples surrounding God's people in the Old Testament times and the New Testament times, like Corinth, where these temples would have upwards of a thousand prostitutes, male and female, for any kind or sort of sexual act. Mm. Imagine taking sex trafficking, pornography, adult entertainment, and strip clubs, and then calling that Mm. a religion, and then saying that that was good spiritual act. Mm -hmm. Uh, This includes in the history of the world, religions like Hinduism have things like the Kama Sutra and prostitution that would have sexuality as part of idolatry and worship. In the New Testament times, the Greeks were a very perverted people, and uh, and the New Testament is written in the language of Greek. And so also, this would include men thinking that the highest form of sex was not a man and a woman, but an older man and a younger boy. And so it was a culture of pedophilia and grooming. Uh, and so when Paul writes, for example, to the church in Corinth, it's a very pagan city. One guy's sleeping with his mother-in-law. Uh, people are living and sleeping together. There's transgenderism. There's gender confusion. There's men dressing up like women, women dressing up like men. They're sleeping together. Mm-hmm. They're having all kinds of sex and orgies. And this includes at their house church meetings mm-hmm. where they're getting drunk and sleeping together. So he has to write the whole book mm-hmm. to sort of clarify all of that. Um, Today, we're seeing the outgrowth of what Paul warned in Romans chapter 1, where he says that we either worship the creator or the created. And when we have this inversion that some created person or thing takes the creator's place, the result is all kinds of sexual sin. Paul talks about homosexuality, he talks about lesbianism, he talks about orgies, gender confusion. All of this was present in the, uh, the times of the Roman Empire. And so, Times change, but people don't, and their sin and their preferences and their prejudices don't. And sadly, um, in early Christianity, there was this Greek dualism where the body is bad, uh, but the soul is good. So the goal is to leave your body and live in your soul. And so there was this sort of disdain for the body and its passions and pleasures. This allowed uh, certain uh, church fathers to say that Adam and Eve would have gotten pregnant uh, from partaking of a particular tree. They wouldn't have had sexual relations until after the fall. Um, all of this sort of false thinking, just craziness, that sex is essentially bad. And that, that is the sex is gross. And today the sex is gross view is really the result of two things, either a sexual sin or assault. So if you either have a lot of sexual sin, you can see it as gross, or if you've been sinned against and or really bad religious teaching in churches. Prudish people saying sex is just for procreation, it's not for pleasure. Oftentimes they have 
some trauma sort of brokenness or, abuse, or trauma. Yeah. So that's why um, I say that. Would you say, honey, that when we first got married, that you would have leaned more toward the sex's gross position? Absolutely. Why, why would that be? Because I had trauma in my past, and so I couldn't see it as a gift because it was traumatizing to me to think about it. And so for me, I had to heal up from that and really allow the Lord to reach into my soul <clears throat> and work through the things that were keeping me from seeing it as a gift. And it was a, it was a process, yeah. and it was hard, but... Um, but when you know that God has created something as good, we have to keep working toward letting him heal us so that we live as if it's good. Yeah, because God made marriage, and he made yeah. marriage as the heart hold the passionate flame of sex. And he did so before sin entered the world. He said it was very good, and they were naked without shame, and so it is a gift. Mm-hmm. I came when we first met from the other position, which is more um, sex is God. Yeah. That would have been my um, my proclivity. That would have been my tendency. I grew up... Uh, not far from a couple of strip clubs. Mm-hmm. I grew up as a non-Christian in a non-Christian home. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sexually active before I met you. I was sexually active once I met you. And so for me, if anything, um, I didn't care much about God until I met the Lord Jesus. And uh, for me, I just thought I was a good person as long as we're in a dating relationship. Any kind of uh, sexuality is a good thing. And so you would have had a view that sex is more gross. I had view that sex was more God. And so then we we stopped having sex before we got married, but we didn't really talk about it or work it through. Right. And I think you were assuming, and I was assuming that when we got married, things would just sort of figure themselves out, which they didn't. Well, and you can see if I see it as gross and you see it as God, how not fixing that issue makes each of us get worse because I'm seeing it as grosser the more you see it as so more God. I, so so I'm, I'm like, hey, hey, yeah. hey. And you're like, no, no, no. Yeah. Offense, defense. Yeah, it's like you're yeah. backing away from each other. You're <laughs> yeah. running after me and I'm backing away. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it doesn't work well. It did not work well. So the only answer is to go back to God created it as a gift. How do we get to that point of both of us seeing it as a gift? Because what if you have thought sex is way too important to him? Yes. He wants to be together too often. This yes. guy's got a problem. Yes. Okay, I forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> I forgive you, okay? Because that's not how it was, just so you know. And I would have thought, man, she's not available. She's right. not warm. She's not friendly. Right. I think I told you, I feel like you live in a bank vault and I can't figure out the code. <laughs> I was always trying to pick the lock. You need to say that. <laughs> Yes, I did. So nonetheless, uh, sex as gifts. So sex isn't God and it's not gross. It's a gift that God gives. And so we see in in Scripture that there are six reasons that God gave sex as a gift. The first is pleasure. So we're going to jump in here soon to the Song of Songs. It never mentions children or procreation. It's just sex for the pleasure and unity of a married couple. Number two, for children, Genesis 2 says to be fruitful, multiply, increase the number, fill the earth, and subdue it. We did that. We did that. We got five kids. <laughs> nailed it. Um, and so out of the most intimate, passionate um, sharing of marriage more comes, life comes more life. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, so we bring forth children. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third is oneness. It says that the two shall become one flesh. And we'll get into this later in our study, but it literally uh, wires, hardwires biochemically a husband and wife mm-hmm. together as one Flesh. There's also... Which is why it needs to be in marriage. In marriage, Mm -hmm. yeah. And then uh, it's for knowledge. It says in Genesis 4-1 that Adam lay with his wife even he He knew her. her. That there's an intimacy, there's a knowledge. That's why sex is only for heterosexual marriage. Mm -hmm. And then there's a a part of you that only one person knows. Uh, the, The fifth is for protection in 1 Corinthians 7. It says... 
Do not deprive one another except by mutual consent and for a season that you may devote yourselves to prayer lest you be tempted, then come together again so you don't give the devil a foothold. And so the point is, um, if you're not having regular marital intimacy, you're open to temptation for pornography, sexual sin, emotional and or physical adultery. And then also the uh, sixth purpose and gift of sexuality is comfort. It says in 2 Samuel 12 that, um, that there was the loss of a child, a couple was really struggling, and so there was nothing to say. Sometimes there's nothing to say. There's no way to fix it or to explain it. Right. And so you just comfort one another by being sexually mm-hmm. connected to one another in the moment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so sex is a, a gift that God gives, and any one of those six functions of sex is proper for marriage. And what happens sometimes with bad teaching They'll just say that only Focusing one on of those. One. Like, well, it's only for procreation or it's only to consummate the covenant. And it's any time that any one of those six purposes of the gift of sex is, is, uh, elevated. is elevated and being used in marriage properly, that's good. If it's being elevated and used in such a way uh, that it negates the others, then that's negative. Well, that being said, we're going we're gonna to jump into uh, the Song of Songs. And, uh, and I'm gonna, I'll read the first, and then you can read her portions, okay. and I'll read his portions. And, uh, and the big idea is here that it's a series of conversations between a husband and a wife. Mm-hmm. And they start in their dating years, their engagement years, it goes up to their marriage, and then it walks through their marriage, then into their later years, and they even have a fight later in the book. <laughs> and so uh, that's just that a good biblical happens. marriage. It, well, we've, we've heard it happen for them, so we're praying for them, but it's nothing we've experienced yet. <laughs> And so the big idea here is it's about conversation and listening. It's about really hearing from one another. So uh, chapter 1, verse 1, he says, uh, Solomon's Song of Songs. And so um, the, the title of the book for some would be the Song of Solomon. Some would call it the Song of Songs and the Songs of poetic. Solomon. It is poetic. Songs. It's Solomon's Song of Songs. Mm-hmm. You can read her, her response. And then she says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. There's a passion there. Kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. It's not a peck on the cheek or just a hug. It's It's an invitation. Do you think she's flirting? Yes. Good. I was hoping you'd say that. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. There's a healthy jealousy there. She notices that he, that other women notice him. Yeah. And she's saying, but I want, Dibs. I want to be with you. <laughs> <laughs> and then the friends jump in. So there are, there are three primary characters throughout the book. There's the man that we'll get into in a moment. We believe is Solomon. The woman that is most likely a woman named Abby Shock. So we'll call her Abby. And then there are the friends who speak in. These, this would be the wise counsel. This would be your your extended family that has wisdom. This would be your friends that have wisdom. People in your faith community. It would have been a synagogue for them. It's a church for us. So the friends are involved. They're celebrating with her in a lot of their phrases. And they're um, they're encouraging what mm-hmm. they're seeing because they're seeing health and life and godliness. And so the friends then say, we rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. What they're saying is, you should be together. You've got a great relationship. We're super proud of you. Um, this is what God has. This is the will of God. And then she speaks last. She says, how right are they to adore you? Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar. And the tents of Kedar were on a hillside, and then on the outside of the tents were black goat hair. So if you looked on the hillside, you basically saw like black 
hair she has running long down. Yes, black so hair. she's describing that. Like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? So they start off, and it's ancient Hebrew poetry. So let me just introduce the Song of Songs or Solomon's Song of Songs. It's about 3,000 years old. Mm -hmm. And so it's ancient Hebrew poetry. And what's amazing is it's a very frank without being crass. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's very clear without being clinical. It's descriptive. It's very descriptive. And so a lot of people read it and they're like, that's a little bit too much. And so um, what happens is some people have a hard time with it because it's so clear. So they say it's about God. So they'll allegorize it. It's not about you and your spouse. It's about you and God. You're like, that actually, that's, that's still weird. Creepier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, I think every loving relationship can teach things about our relationship with God. So maybe that's a secondary use, but we would have a literal and not what's called an allegorical interpretation right. of the book. It is the first philosophy. Some would say that philosophy comes from the Greeks, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epimenides, Alexander the Great. It actually comes from Job and Solomon. Mm. And so uh, here it's about the first philosophy of love is really what it is about. And it's a series of love songs. And so when it says Solomon's Song of Songs, uh, the Bible says that he had more than 3,000 um, proverbs and around a thousand songs. He was very creative. He's a songwriter. He's a poet. Um, and in calling it the Song of Songs, it's like the King of Kings or the Lord of Lords. Mm -hmm. These are his best works. Mm -hmm. These are his greatest hits. Uh, what's interesting is the Jewish people in antiquity, they would read it every Passover at the pub. So you'd get together at the pub, have a drink with the guys, and <laughs> read the Song of Solomon. And uh, if you were Jewish, there is uh, an indication that they wouldn't let you read it until you were 30 or married. So you have Jewish boys late at night, like, <laughs> under the covers with a candle, reading the Song of Solomon, trying to figure out what it meant. Um, again, uh, the woman is mentioned, the man is mentioned, the friends are mentioned. There is a debate as to whether or not God is ever mentioned. Mm. We'll get into that later. Um, and what's really interesting, it's never quoted in the New Testament, so it just sort of stands alone, mm. and it never mentions children. Right. And so the primary purpose of the book is not to be fruitful, multiply, increase the number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Though if you do what they say, that will happen, yeah. <laughs> most likely. The odds are in your favor. It's just about a married couple having passionate, deep, mm -hmm. connected, romantic intimacy. Because that's needed before you have kids. Yes. Your marriage is always most important. And so having a healthy relationship gives you healthy perspective in raising your kids and keeping your marriage priority. Well, and let's just get to that real quick. So what happens is oftentimes people get married and they have kids and the passion in the relationship is gone and all the passion goes toward the raising of the children. Yeah, because they're a lot of work and that's easy to do and not even think about what you're doing. And so it's important to go back to Song of Songs and remember, okay, this is what I need to keep priority. We still need to enjoy each other because yeah. when the kids are gone, we have a relationship still, ideally. <laughs> and so then we can still enjoy each other as we're getting to know each other even while we're raising the kids. Well, and, um, and we're seeing this um, just personally in our own relationship. Uh, today we're 50. We've got two kids that are married, one in college, two in high school. And when they're little, they require a tremendous amount of physical energy. It's just exhausting. Yeah, little boys, boys are always trying to kill themselves. <laughs> so you're always on suicide watch if you're raising boys. 
And uh, as they get older, they get a little more independent and it's more emotional energy. It's being available to coach them through yeah. life, their relationships, their conversations, their conflicts, mm-hmm. them figuring out who God made them to be. Um, and then there's a point where your kids leave their mother and father. They go start their own family. They're no longer part of your family and you become extended family, at least in a healthy family system. Yeah. And the result then is if you don't have a good, passionate, loving, um, satisfying, exciting marriage, uh, a couple of things happen. If the children are the gravitational force sort of serving as the center of the family and marital universe, when the children leave, um, then everything flies out of orbit. And we're seeing couples that we know that are around our age that do love the Lord. And as their children leave, their marriage craters. And it's tragic and it's very, very horrible. And or then the the couple tries to overly invest and involve themselves, meddle in their children's lives and or marriages because there's nothing holding them together. So they're trying to pull their children back home or pull this new family through marriage back into their family as one big dysfunctional family rather than two extended families. And they don't know each other anymore. And or they're just begging for grandkids because they're like, we had a little person that held us together. You're not little anymore. Give us some new little people so we can repeat the dysfunction of our broken marriage. Yeah. And so it's really important, not only in the dating and engagement and early married years, but throughout the course of marriage to keep pursuing one another, growing in your intimacy, increasing your passion, enjoying your sexuality. Um, Which is why we go back to it's important to heal up so that you can move in that trajectory that's healthy as you go through marriage and parenting. Yeah, because a lot of people, they're broken, and rather than dealing with their brokenness, they just try to find people or things to continue their brokenness. 